Well, welcome everyone to another week. How crazy is it that it's already the end of January? Like, I feel like I blinked and there, there goes a month of the year. Like, on Monday, February starts. That's, that's crazy. Um, it's been a pretty cool week for me, as many of you know. Um, my family, like, we're reunited for the first time in about a year um, this week. And my parents and my sisters are here today, which is really awesome. I'm not going to embarrass them, but... <laughs> Welcome, guys. Great to have you here. I probably just embarrassed them enough right there. Um, if I haven't met you before, my name is Lockie, and I'm one of the pastors here at Gold Coast Central. Pastor Mike is our senior pastor. He was just up doing the dedication before. And uh, if you are visiting or you're a guest today, I just want to extend a huge welcome to you, let you know that you're loved here, that you're welcome here, and that we're so excited to have you in the house of God this morning. Uh, let's see if we can get this clicker working. Living in the light. That is today's topic. When I first moved to the Gold Coast a year ago, I learned something about Queenslanders. I learned something really important about Queenslanders, and that is that Queenslanders absolutely detest cold water. I would go to the beach some mornings, and it would be like 6.30, 7 a.m. in the morning, and I couldn't understand why there was no one else there. Uh, like, sure, it was like 15 degrees outside and I'd go for a swim, but like, I'd, I'd try and, I was trying to work out why is it that, that Queenslanders like, don't like the, the water here in Queensland? It's amazing. It's so warm. And it clicked for me that, that where I'm from in Perth, where the water comes straight off the ice caps to the, to the beach, um, you don't really get a choice as to the temperature of the water. Um, you kind of just have to go for it. And if it's too cold, too bad. That's, that's the only option you've got. And uh, there's been more than one occasion where, where you know, I've been going out with like, the young adults or something and we've gone to the beach and very few of them have been keen to swim. Um, but, but I'm always down for a swim, so I'll get in there. And I realize that people just like, unless you've swum in the water in Perth, you just don't get it in the same way. Um, that, that there is water that is that cold, but it's like that's the beach and that's what I knew my whole life. And I wonder, if, has there ever been like something that you've experienced and you've tried explaining it to someone, but because they haven't experienced it, they just didn't get it? Yeah, anyone else ever been through that before? That's, that's a kind of tension that we're going to be jumping into today in the passage that we're going to read. So I want you to hang on to that as I pray, and then we'll, we'll get right into it. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you that we can come together, welcome new people into our family, welcome guests here. Let's just worship you, celebrate this time together. I pray you'd rid me of myself now, that you would fill me with your spirit and speak through me. And I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, if you have a Bible, uh, would you open it up to the book of First John? First John. It's towards the end of the New Testament, which is the second section of the Bible. So, if you've got a paperback one, it'll be towards the back. If you have a phone one and you're scrolling down, it'll be towards the bottom there. Um, first John is is the first of three letters written by a man named John. Uh, yeah, that's right. It's pretty self-explanatory. Many scholars believe that this is the same John who actually wrote the Gospel of John, which is the fourth book of the New Testament. It's a story uh, about Jesus, right? It's just a story of him while he was on earth. And this book of First John is a letter, or probably more accurately, it's like a sermon that was written down and sent to a group of believers. And where we jump in in this passage, we're going to jump in First John chapter 1, verse 5. Where we jump in here, remember that tension I told you to hold on to before? That's the tension that's going on here. That's what John is dealing with, because if this is actually the John that wrote the Gospel of John, then he knew Jesus personally. He experienced Jesus personally. And he's trying to tell these newer believers about something that he has experienced. Okay, so we're going to pick up in the book of 1 John, chapter 1, verse 5. It's going to be on the screen behind me as well, so if you don't have a Bible, it's all good. You can join in there as well. Um, But let's read. It says, This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. 
Right? So that's what John's saying. This is the message I heard from Jesus and now declare to you. That God is light. Bit of a bit of a strange thing to say, but God is light. That's the message that he's trying to communicate to these believers. And there is no darkness in him at all. So we're lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's kind of a weird phrase to end the passage, and we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But we're going to go back to that first claim that John makes, that he kind of starts off the passage with this argument that God is light. And it probably isn't a new idea that that you're coming across if you're hearing this thing, God is light, because it's actually the first words that God says in the Bible, is let there be light. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, we see images of light to, to represent God and his power and his divinity. In fact, when the people of Israel, God's chosen people, were in the desert uh, and they were wandering through the wilderness, he guided them at night by a light. And then when Jesus came onto the scene, in in the book of John actually, in in chapter 1 verse 5 it says this, this is talking about Jesus, it says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. That word extinguish also means overcome. The darkness can never extinguish or overcome it. And I want to kind of illustrate this really quickly. And so what I've asked the sound guys to do is just to dim all the lights in here. So if you've got a little one, just hang on to them. Let them know the lights will be back on in just a moment. We're going to turn all the lights down in here. Now, while it got a bit darker, my guess is you can probably still see a little bit. That's because we've got a, a, bit, of, a bit of an opening at the back. We've got a, an exit sign over here. We've got a couple little lights on stage. I'll take the words off screen. But you can still see a little bit of light. Now, I did this because I want to see who's on their phones. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm only kidding. Um, but, but what you can... What, you don't have to turn the phones off, guys. It's all good. Um, but but what, the reason I did this is because is I want to illustrate that even just a small bit of light, when it gets into darkness, the darkness can't actually overcome it. Right? Even, even the smallest bit of light is powerful enough to overcome darkness. So we can turn those lights back up now. Thanks, guys. And what I hope this point has illustrated for you is that no matter where you find yourself, even if it feels like a dark place, that even just a little bit of Jesus, even a little bit of God in your life can be enough to start eliminating that darkness that you're experiencing. And I think that's what John's trying to communicate here when he says that God is light. Because this group of believers that he was writing to were struggling with something that's called Gnosticism. Have fun spelling that one out, Janaya. Sorry, she's signing over here and doing an amazing job. Uh, Gnosticism, right? (laughs) So Gnosticism, what it is, is it is a belief system that says that godly things or good things are are pure, but everything that's worldly or or fleshly, as some people will describe it, everything that's like material is bad. And what that led these people down a path of believing is that Jesus couldn't be fully God because he was a human being. He was a physical being. That meant... He couldn't be fully God. And there was a whole bunch of heresies that were coming out of this. And, and so John is trying to write against that. And he's saying, hey, God is light. God is pure. God is, God is holy. God is set apart. God is different. God is so far better than anything you could ever experience. And he's saying this because he wants to encourage them that in the same way that light helps us see the world in a clearer picture, so having God in your life can help you see the world more clearly. And not just see the world more clearly, 
but it will show you how to act in the world differently. This is John's message from that first passage, that God wants you to see and live in the world differently. You might be thinking, well, that's all well and good, but what on earth does that mean? What does different mean? Let's keep reading. In verse 8, we continue. John says, and he's speaking some pretty strong words here. He says, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, I love this. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. From how much wickedness? All wickedness, right? Not just a little bit all wickedness. God is able to fully cleanse us from that wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. It's a bit of a sucker punch there, hey. Uh, It kind of looks like just words, but as you reflect on that, you realize, wow, like John is actually trying to communicate a really powerful and hard message here. What he's saying is that no matter how long you follow Jesus for, whether it be like one day, one week, one century, (laughs) you never graduate your need for forgiveness. That no matter where you find yourself in your walk with God, there are always going to be parts of our lives that need healing, that need restoring. And John doesn't tell these believers, and and by extension us today, he doesn't tell us this to discourage us or to dishearten us. But what he says is, you actually need God. You need God in your life to help you, to heal you, to restore you. And the reason we can be forgiven is not because we ask and God sees us and is like, okay, they're, they are, they're asking, so I'm going to forgive them. It actually says the reason we can be forgiven is because God is faithful, because God is just. And the next bit we're going to read now is about how he's able to offer us that forgiveness. John writes, my dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, which is me, just for the record, it's you just for the record, when we do sin, We have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. And not just any advocate. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. I said we're going to come back to that image of the blood that was talked about before. Um, if you knew the faith of Christianity, that might be a bit of a gross thing to think about. Um, but, but what it's actually referring to is, is in the Old Testament, that first section of Scripture, the people of God had a, had a system, a sacrificial system it was called, by which they could have a right relationship with God. And at the time, that system was revolutionary because it taught them that, that no matter what you'd done, you knew what it took to, to make yourself right with God. But but it was a flawed system in some sense because what it required was that human beings had to actually go to God and get that healing. And because of how broken human beings are, that wasn't always what they did. But what this system looked like was that an innocent animal would actually be sacrificed and would take the punishment for that person's sin. Paul writes in the book of Romans 3.23 that the wages of sin is death. So there was a price that had to be paid for sin. But what this passage tells us is what Jesus did is he came down to earth. He took on the humble position of a slave, as it says in Philippians. And he, and he lived a life of perfect obedience to God's law. And when he died on the cross, he actually paid the penalty for you and for me and for all people of all time. And what that means for us is that we can actually have a right relationship with God. We can have a restored relationship with God. Because Jesus has paid the price that our sins deserve. 
Paul writes it this way in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says that he who knew no sin, meaning Jesus, became sin for us. If you want to make that a bit more personal, you can say, Jesus who never sinned took on himself my sin and in exchange gave me his right standing with God. That is the gospel. That is the good news right there. That in exchange for our brokenness, when we place our faith in Jesus and we ask for forgiveness of our sins, we have an advocate who says, no, no, they're covered in my blood now. Just as the lamb would pay for the sins of people in the Old Testament, I'm paying for the sins of these people. They can have a right relationship with you. They can be forgiven. They can be freed. They can be healed right now, today, in this moment. And if you've never accepted that or never asked for that, then I want to extend an invitation to you today to say, yep, I want to put my hand up. I want, to, I want Jesus to forgive me of my sins. And if you're wondering, okay, well, what, what is sin? Uh, a lot of people think of it as like bad action, right? As bad things that we do. And that's one part of sin. But um, the author of the book of James actually goes a bit further. And he says this. He says, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. And that's a pretty confronting passage. But, but what, it, what it's suggesting is that sin is knowing the right thing and not doing it. Sin is, is seeing injustice happening in the world around you and not doing anything about it. And I don't know about you, but I've definitely had opportunities this week to do right and not done it. The other day, I'd got back from summer camp and I was absolutely wrecked. And I'd gone to the shops to get some food and I was driving out and I saw a lady like running in, in the rain to go to her car. And I thought, oh, I should give her a lift. But then by the time I decided whether or not I was going to do it, I was already too far past and I left. Right? I had an opportunity to do the right thing, but I didn't do it. And James says, well, that's, that's sin. And I'm not showing that with you today to discourage or dishearten you, but what I'm trying to demonstrate is that even the best things we can offer God, like we are, we are still broken people and we need Jesus every single day. We need him to cover us. We need him to walk with us, to journey with us. We need that forgiveness that he offers and he is offering it to you today no matter where you find yourself. He's saying, hey, I am here. I have a better way for you to exist in this world. I have a new way for you to be human. All you need to do is reach out and ask and I will forgive you because I've already paid the price for it. So what might it look like if, if we actually applied that to our lives. Well, let's, let's keep reading. This is verses three to five. It says, and we can be sure that we know him, that we know God. You see, God doesn't just want to forgive you and leave you. He's not like some sugar daddy up in heaven that just wants to help you out and then leave you to do your own life, right? No, no, no. God actually wants to know you intimately. He wants to know you personally. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments, it says. If someone claims, I know God, but don't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and not living in the truth or living in the light, as we might say. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. And this is how we know we are living in him. Now, this can be a really challenging passage to reflect on and work with because a lot of people have misinterpreted it over the years. That they've looked at this passage and said, okay, well, obedience then is the litmus test of how much I love God. That the amount, uh, the, the quality of my obedience is going to determine to other people or demonstrate to other people how much I love God. Or maybe they've pushed back against that and said, no, um, I, I love God, right? And so I'm going to obey him out of, out of love. And that, love is gonna, and that obedience is going to be the overflow of my love. And I think where that comes from is it, it comes from a place of, of where we are as like a, a society at the moment, as, as Western society or the global north, as scholars call it. 
And there's one pastor down in Melbourne. His name's Mark Sayers. And if you haven't heard of him before, I'd encourage you to check out his work. He's put a lot of work into articulating and putting words to the current cultural moment that we're living in. And and what he describes this cultural moment is post-Christianity. Okay, post-Christianity. We live in a society where a whole bunch of people enjoy the benefits of Christianity, like having good morals or social justice, seeing uh, people be good people. We live in that kind of society, but they don't actually want the God attached to it. Another way of saying that is that people want the kingdom without the king. And I've definitely seen symptoms of that, even in my own life, right? Where I want some of the good things that Christianity has, but then there are other parts where like, I don't even want to be associated with this Christian and what they're doing. Or I don't want to be associated with what this person is doing in the name of Jesus. But, but when, we, when we come to this passage, John seems to say, well, no, there's, there's no difference between loving God and, and obeying his commandments, in fact, if I were to ask John and say, okay, John, which is more important? Am I supposed to love God or am I supposed to do what he says? He'd be like, yes, you're supposed to love God and do what he says. They're not different things. Like, like, like obeying God's commandments isn't an overflow of loving God entirely. Like, like loving God is doing what he says. That's God's love language. It is actually obeying him. And I want to challenge you with that today because I don't, I don't want um, to, to stand up here and, and be someone who preaches, you know, just a, an airy-fairy message. I don't want to just share something that, that doesn't challenge you or stretch you because I believe that's, that's what the Bible is for. It's actually to transform us to be more and more like Jesus. But obedience isn't just something that we do out of love. Obedience is the way that we love God. It's almost as if the Bible is like a user manual that the Creator has given to the product which is us, right? That God has actually created us and he's given us the Bible to be an instruction and a guide for how we live our lives. But it's also a very personal thing, right? Like my job isn't to look at someone and say, well, they don't love Jesus enough because they're not obeying God well enough. That isn't what it's about at all. You see, in John's writings, you never actually see his command to like follow the commandments separate from Jesus' command to love. For him, they're one and the same. Like, like, like in, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says that the greatest commandments are to love God and to love other people. And John says the way we do that, not the overflow of that, I don't obey God because I love him. I love him by obeying him. Right? He, he, he says here that, that when we obey God's commandments, we are actually loving God. That's like God's love language. It's living our lives in a way that he wants us to live them. Because he's given us those commands, those instructions to demonstrate how we can live lives that perpetuate loving God and loving others. And so as I kind of wrap this message up, as we come to a close, I want to leave you with the final verse of this passage. So if you missed everything else, if, if you're still wrestling with this and, and want a bit more clarity, then I don't want you to, to miss this line. This is probably the most important line of the whole passage right here. It says that those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. That when it all comes down to it, that those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. And that's the crux of this message, that living in the light, that that allowing Jesus to work in you and work through you, it is wholly and completely about weaving Jesus into the way we live our lives. That we don't just follow Jesus because we love God, 
Like we follow Jesus and that is how we love God, right? We, we weave that into our daily lives. And that's what this year is all about, walking the way, walking the way of Jesus, following him, serving him, that in everything, not just in little parts or compartments of our lives, but in everything we do, that we are living our lives as Jesus did. And so I want to challenge you with this this morning to reflect and think, how can I live my life as Jesus did? Or reflect on this question here, how might Jesus live if he were me. So if Jesus was like a year nine student at school, how would Jesus live? If Jesus was a radiographer, if Jesus was an accountant, if Jesus was a retiree, if Jesus was an educator or a lecturer, if Jesus was a graphic designer, if Jesus was a musician, an artist, a dancer, if Jesus were you, how would he live out his life? Because we can ask that question, what would Jesus do? But when we ask that, we're, we're prone to actually answering it in ways that we think Jesus would act, right? Because we say, well, this is what I think Jesus would do if he were here. But this question actually challenges us to go the next step and say, not just would Jesus do, but what would Jesus do if he were in my circumstances? If he were a single parent or if, if he were a mother raising young kids, how, how would Jesus live if he were me? And as you ponder that question, I want you to think about that in the week ahead as you go about your days. How would Jesus live if he were me? Would it change anything about the words you use or the actions you display or the smiles that you give? How would Jesus live if he were me? So as you ponder that, as you reflect on that now, would you bow your heads with me as I pray? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for paying the price for our sins. God, I just ask forgiveness for myself for those sins that I've committed. And Lord, I know there are plenty of people here this morning that want to echo that same prayer. Father, we thank you for paying the price wholly and completely for our sins. God, we thank you that we don't have to do anything to earn your love, to earn, to, to earn salvation, to earn forgiveness or anything like that, but it's, it's wholly and completely paid for. God, I ask that you might give us a heart to love you a heart to love you by, by doing what you tell us to do, but by shaping and building our lives around who Jesus is and who he's called us to be. Lord, at the end of the day, we want to be more like you. And I pray that for this church in the week ahead. I pray that they might just be so in love, so infatuated by who you are that they might want to change their own lives, God. And I pray that for myself too. Thank you for hearing us and being with us today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.